0: Chapter Thirty-Two, Part One of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret S. Bayat. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two by Moncure Conway. Chapter Thirty-Two, Part One. It is my conviction that between 1860 and 1880 the English Parliament reached its high watermark of ability, whether considered individually or collectively. This may be considered a senile delusion, though I should consider it a childish delusion to consider the Parliament opening with the twentieth century equal to that of thirty years before. The figures surviving from the past struggles mingling with those of the later generation in the House of Lords gave me a new sentiment about the hereditary house. Especially impressive was Lord Brougham's thin, bent form, moving amid the scene of his historic labours, and it was pleasant to observe that every peer of whatever party greeted him as he passed. The liberal leader in the House of Lords, Lord Granville, had a handsome and beaming countenance. Strikingly like that of the poet Longfellow. His speaking was pleasant and to the point. Lord John Russell was so famous that I was surprised at his small stature. There was a story that he once wrote a poem in which the highest flight of imagination was in the line The Red Rose and the Yellow Orange. But Lord John was by no means so prosaic as the humorists made out. His speeches, always uttered from long experience and wide information, were never dull. No debater in that house, however, could be compared with the conservative leader, Lord Derby. Darwin might have written on him a study of political evolution. Every clear-cut feature, every hair on the shapely head, every tone of his penetrating satire, feathered with well-bred grace, indicated a leader organically made for his place i heard his famous speech attacking the government in february eighteen sixty four sydney smith was never more brilliant than derby in his description of lord john russell's foreign policy he pictured him as bottom wishing to play every part quoting the phrases of shakespeare with consummate art and ended with the noble lord's motto seems to have been metal and muddle nil quod non et nil tetigit quod non conturbavit it was all said in the impetuous style that made bulwer describe him as the rupert of debate lord john russell's face bore a sardonic smile during the vivisection but there was something anaesthetic in derby's gracious manner and tone To the banter Russell only said it was of course very fine, as it all came from Shakespeare. The debates in the House of Lords interested me as presenting the reactionary and the liberal interpretations of the British Constitution and of English history. The interpretations were not contrarious, but recognizable as the two wings which had steadily borne the nation through the storms of centuries. The speeches generally indicated the close study of a leisure class, and absence of that influence from the aura popularis which affects men depending on popular suffrage. These lords, assured of their position, without any interest to elbow any one in order to rise higher, reminded me of the old race of Virginian statesmen. Living on their estates, supported by the labor of their slaves, they had leisure to give their attention to large subjects. The speeches of Pendleton, Crump, John S. Barber, Robert E. Scott, Travers Daniel, to which I used to listen, were marked by wide information, not merely political, but literary and historical. There was comparatively little of the spread-eagle bombast of the demagogues. The English radical threats of sweeping away the House of Lords did not excite my sympathy. Opposed as I am to the American bicameral system, I knew that in England its only alternative would be an elective, always a rotten borough senate. The only conceivable value of a second chamber is an independence of the popular breath which might enable it to check popular passion. What nonsense we are brought up in about the horrors of hereditary legislation. All legislation is hereditary. How do the American masses get their votes? By birth. On February 10, 1866, I had a place in the House of Lords to witness the opening of Parliament by the Queen. Since the death of the Prince Consort, she had been in deep retreat, and this first step towards a resumption of her functions caused universal satisfaction. The peers and peeresses prepared to welcome her with an enthusiasm and display now historic. Lord Granville had secured for me a fine seat among the peeresses, and I believe that every gem, necklace, coronet, robe, and decoration belonging to the nobility of England was worn that day. The fullest-of-court dress was worn by the several hundred ladies, and the scene billowy with necks and shoulders. For once I saw the ideal legislative assembly, the ancient Wittenagermat, with best men and women in consultation. There were whispers of disappointment when the queen appeared. The fine robes and insignia she ought to have worn were displayed on a table near her. Save for some slight badge and the cohenure on her forehead, she was still in sombre raiment. She was the only homely woman in the house, and her homeliness, emphasized by her sombre dress, was the more pronounced by contrast with the beautiful and superbly costumed Princess of Wales. Instead of reading her address to Parliament as usual, it was read by the Chamberlain through it she sat as if carved on the throne when it was finished she arose bowed slightly kissed the princess of wales and disappeared through the back door as my political philosophy assigned to a monarch the sole métier of being charming and ornamental and thereby holding the chief place secure from usurpation by presidency this withdrawal of the queen from her functions impressed me as a danger there was a vigorous republican agitation going on in England, and it was frequently said that the practical extinction of the court had demonstrated the uselessness of the throne. I remember being at a dinner of the Urban Club, St. John's Gate, of which I was a member, when young Mr. Bappington, a kinsman of Lord Macaulay, refused to rise to the toast to the Queen, avowing, when his conduct was challenged, his Republican opposition to monarchy. There was a noisy discussion, but a goodly number defended Babington's right to so express his opinion. It became plain to me that the Queen was not then popular. The Republican organizations were enfeebled by Andrew Johnson, and died under Grant's administration. It was really an American movement, and I knew well that Republicanism in England would mean an imitation of our quadrennial revolutionary presidential campaign and our bicameral congress the french say the better is enemy of the good in so-called political reform the better often destroys the good without succeeding to it congress was an inferior body to parliament and i felt that it was because neither senator nor representative possessed the personal independence of the peer and the commoner. The superiority of the peer especially consisted in his not having to keep his eye on the Hustings, while his subordination to the commons in any trial of voting strength made it all the more necessary that his argument should be sound and lucid. But there was already a danger that the House of Lords might lose this independence through intimidation by the menaces of the increasingly enfranchised masses. I used to meet the accomplished Lord Dufferin, a constant friend of the Union cause in America, and asked him whether it would not be wise for the Lords to demand a law definitely securing their right to throw out a measure twice, the said measure to become law without any action of the upper house, if the Commons should pass it a third time. Lord Dufferin declared he would strongly favor such a change— and he had no doubt a majority of the peers would rejoice in it. But subsequent observation convinced me that the commons would never agree to it, as a good many of them, in order to please their constituents, sometimes vote for a measure they secretly hate because they know the lords will throw it out. The House of Lords has thus often served as a scapegoat. Several of the peers mingled in the debates with a tone that seemed to recognize the approaching democracy. The Duke of Argyle, Lord Kimberley, and several bishops were somewhat restless, as if they would prefer to be in the fray of the other house. But as a rule the lords presented the aspect of having reached the Happy Isle. There was never any sarcasm or bitterness in their encounters. A palpable hit that drew no blood— was the aim of each antagonist. At the table of the Duke and Duchess of Argyle, at Argyll Lodge, Kensington, I first met a number of lords who, like themselves, were deeply interested in the anti-slavery cause. Afterwards I met other aristocratic families, several members of which came to South Place Chapel. I discovered that Bunyan's line, He that is down, need fear no fall, has a corollary, He that is so solidly up, that he neither fears a fall, nor aspires to climb, may illustrate humility as much as he who is down. It is not snobbery, but common sense, which recognizes the superiority of the English aristocracy to the English middle class. Arthur Clough hinted this with his Chartist and Irishman. Is not one man, fellow-men, as good as another? faith replied pat and a deal better too the english race has spread through the world doctrines of equality while at home their aristocratic institutions have inevitably bred an inequality not simply of position which might be outgrown but of character and manners all the social tiers beneath the aristocracy strive upward and by their pushing ambition their snobbery their contempt for the class beneath them their elbowing each other to get ahead they are apt to become vulgarized it is the fatal necessity of the aristocracy in reaching social supremacy by birth and without any trick or snobbery to create inferior classes beneath them but one must be blind not to recognize the superiority of the average nobility in elegance repose simplicity freedom from pretense, and tact in establishing, without airs of patronage, pleasant relations with persons of any and every rank. However democratic the upper-middle classes may become, they rarely rid themselves of snobbery. Gladstone was once summoned as a witness in a case that concerned the Duke of Newcastle. Asked whether he was intimate with the Duke, he replied, "'As intimate as our difference in rank permits.' Gladstone was Prime Minister, and the Duke inferior to him in everything but birth. It was with extreme interest that I witnessed and watched the competition of Disraeli and Gladstone as to which should outbid the other in lowering the franchise. Disraeli had set out to educate the Tories, as a phrase ascribed to him went, and had plainly taken the unjust steward of the parable as his model. Seeing that Gladstone, by the aid of John Bright, would surely enlarge the popular franchise, and that if the Liberal Party got all of the credit of such enlargement, the Conservative Party must be permanently excluded from power, he changed all the accounts between the old Tories and the masses, and was duly received into their habitations. Lord Derby refused to commend the ingenious steward he described Disraeli's large step towards democracy as a leap in the dark, and soon after resigned his leadership. The retreat from official life of the most brilliant man in the House of Lords marked the close of an epoch. On the other hand, the most brilliant commoner on the liberal side, the Right Honorable Robert Lowe, refused to take Gladstone's leap in the dark." I never heard in the House of Commons a more powerful speech than that of Lowe in parting from the chief to whose government he belonged. He knew that his place in the cabinet was to be filled by the leader of the independent benches, John Bright. But John Bright felt that some line must be drawn in lowering the franchise, and spoke vaguely of a residuum. Robert Lowe, amid the breathless stillness of the house, turned towards John Bright, and, alluding to the opera of Don Giovanni, said that the heavy footsteps of the commandant's statue had been heard, and the stony figure now entered, saying, John, you have invited me to supper, and I have come. Alluding to the proposal for an educational test, he said, I suppose we must teach our masters to read. All through the speech there were felicitous touches, but the main force was in the prophetic, though quietly uttered statement of the revolution that was being wrought merely for the sake of transient party interests. Lord Shaftesbury revealed to me the large residuum of intolerance lurking within me. My dislike was not caught from Carlyle. Who in a latter day pamphlet spoke of him as the universal syllabub of philanthropic twaddle, but from the way in which his mere rank was utilized by the whole world of English cant. Pious and evangelical meetings advertised his expected presence as theatres might draw with a star actor, but those who went to worship a live Lord in the beauty of holiness found no star unless on his breast there were occasional instances in which the popular snobbery was enlisted in behalf of charities but these were apt to be mixed with some pietism and weighed but little against his obstruction of the right and the need of the unchurched people to enjoy their museums and galleries on sunday in this long struggle against the offering of human sacrifices to the sabbath i was for many years engaged and had a belief that Shaftesbury was not honest in persuading workingmen that their weekly day of rest was endangered by an enlargement of their freedom on that day. But during the conflict of the ablest women against Shaftesbury's factory acts I concluded that he was merely weak-minded. The workmen were using his soft heart and softer head to rid themselves of the competition of female labor by telling doleful tales about the way in which women were overworked and their children suffering. In vain we pleaded that there were a million more women than men in the country, that they had to support themselves, and that they could not do so if they were prevented from selling their time and their toil on equal terms. Working men's selfishness succeeded through Shaftesbury's sentimentality, and multitudes of women were excluded from factories because forbidden to work full-time. If either of the fates had anything to do with giving Lord Derby such a lieutenant in the commons as Disraeli, she must have been in a jocular mood when it was done. If Derby was the conservative leader by structural evolution, Disraeli was the chief Tory commoner by sport of nature. No one could look at him without seeing that his natural place was to be acting Mephistopheles in Her Majesty's Theater, rather than that of the political cynic in Her Majesty's House of Commons. Derby believed in something, but beneath every affirmation of Disraeli there was an undertone of skepticism. He once said to W. J. Fox, M. P., my predecessor at South Place, "'I am much misunderstood. My fort is revolution.' his literary career began with the revolutionary epic. He carried his cynical Christianity to the extent of propounding the unanswerable theory that Judas deserved canonization, since he had performed a disagreeable function without which the scriptures could not have been fulfilled, and there could have been no salvation for mankind. Such was the leader that the bishops had to follow, while he must have laughed in his sleeve at them. He denounced the mass in masquerade of ritualism, but dated a note Monday Thursday. A professor told me that, having on some occasion to see Disraeli, he was received in the library, and Disraeli, pointing to his books, said, Most of them are the classics and theology, my favorite studies. But, said my informant, It is certain he could not read the one, nor understand the other. With all this I found myself enjoying Disraeli's eminence and influence. There was something so picturesque in a Jewish lad bringing the royal family and the aristocracy to his feet. He had done it, too, in the wise and gentle way of Solomon, who reigned forty years and won foreign kingdoms by unbroken civility and friendliness professor Fawcett, who entered parliament with a reputation for radicalism and for a special antagonism to disraeli told me that disraeli was the first to extend his hand and welcome him into the house he was gracious to opponents and his success as a leader was largely due to his greater eagerness to bring forward the young and modest members of his party than to display himself in this being notably distinguished from Gladstone, who overshadowed even his own cabinet. He also had the sense of humor in which Gladstone was so sadly deficient. Disraeli's speeches were more plausible than profound, but, despite an occasional soupçon of affectation, they sparkled with genius and were delivered with ease and grace. Whenever a speech of ornamental character was needed, disraeli was the only member of either house who could utter it perfectly it was said that the high old tories were jealous of the enthusiasm of the queen for him gained by the pretty things he said at times concerning her and her family when the princess alice of hesse died of diphtheria, caught by a kiss to her dying child disraeli in his touching speech alluded to the incident as one that deserved to be engraved on an intaglio and it was said lord salisbury whispered blood will tell but it would have been better for lord salisbury if he had possessed some taste for such gems disraeli was also solomonic in his appreciation of the influence of women his wife was very homely but in her pallid almost weird face and deep-set eyes was visible the power that made her his good genius. His attentiveness to her in company was beautiful. He sympathized with every effort to advance women, and at a drawing-room meeting held to advocate a measure pending in Parliament to enfranchise women where I was present, it was authoritatively announced that Disraeli would vote for the measure. Miss Frances Power Cobb arose and said, Mr. Gladstone, however, has declared that he will oppose it, and this government opposition will be fatal to us. Let him be known as William the Woman-Hater. Soon afterwards the Tory ladies formed the Primrose League, from Disraeli's favorite flower, and though an opposition Liberal League was formed, it was feeble, and the Liberal Party has suffered ever since through the alienation of eminent women by Gladstone. The women had with infinite toil secured a majority of Parliament, partly through Disraeli's adhesion, for their enfranchisement, which was to be added as a rider to a bill for the extension of the franchise introduced by Gladstone. But Gladstone declared he would withdraw the bill if the rider were added. The members of his cabinet who favored the rider, even Fawcett, left the House when the vote came on and with them many private members. The woman's suffrage was lost after it was achieved, the defeat being apparently final. But I have gone ahead of my chronicle. Gladstone was not Prime Minister of Parliament the time when I first began to recognize its greatness, but Palmerston, the cynical old politician whom every radical was bound to dislike, but could not help regarding with interest. In fact, he was such a historic figure that it seemed unfair to measure him by any standard that had grown up with young england old as he really was he was so full of life and was so mentally active that his small figure and rosy cheeks quick movement and fashionable dress conveyed an impression of youthfulness until he spoke then one perceived not by his voice but by his thoughts and phrases that he belonged to a past generation. He had an air of being unable to understand that a Parliament had grown up able to rebel against his control. It was a considerable part of Richard Cobden's task to watch Palmerston. I remember on one occasion the old Premier trying three times in different forms to bring forward some evasion of the Speaker's ruling each time Cobden interrupted him with a point of order. Palmerston sat smiling and occasionally turning towards his vigilant critic with a droll sort of you-be-damned look, for he evidently knew that on a point of procedure Cobden was always right. The bizarre career of Disraeli was even surpassed by that of Palmerston. He had incurred charges of treason, of forging public documents, of sanctioning the murderous outrages of Sir John Boring on the Chinese, of selling his influence to Russia for its payment of a gambling debt of twenty thousand pounds, and appointing a disreputable fellow, Hart, who secured the money to be consul at Leipzig. He had been dismissed from the premiership on a complaint of the Queen that he withheld information from her and altered measures after she had signed them. These charges were poured into my ear by anti-Palmerstonists, but only one interested me, that of the Queen. It rather pleased my Republican ideas that Palmerston, having offended the Queen, should three years later become her prime minister. My boyish memories of the parental index expurgatorius, which included Bulwer's novels, invested that famous author with some romance. He was curious enough in appearance to have stepped out of his own fantastic, strange story. His head was a sort of caricature, the jutting forehead and deep-set eyes being as a sort of make-up. The amusing day in the House of Commons was that set apart for the annual motion to enfranchise women. It was under the care of Jacob Bright, though his famous brother John steadily voted against it, and silently. Beresford Hope always led the opposition to its foregone result, and evidently took pleasure in tormenting the ladies behind their grating by making fun of them. I remember his description of the bill to enfranchise the failures of the sex. Another annual was the motion to legalize marriage with a deceased wife's sister. For a time the Commons passed it every year and the Lords regularly refused approval. I remarked that, after such disapproval, the House of Commons never sent it up again during the same session, and may add that I reached the conclusion that the Commons never insisted on this bill, because they did not wish it passed by the Lords, as it might have been had they returned it twice. The Lords, and especially the Bishops, were well pleased to have the bill sent up every year, as it enabled them to boast of their power to veto the House of Commons. But it was all a sham affair. The friends of the measure in the Commons did not demand a second vote in the same session, because they knew they would not get a majority. This is the only measure quoted in support of the Lord's right of veto, and many foreigners are deceived by it. No measure sent up by the House of Commons three times in the same session can fail to pass. Gladstone's measure of home rule for Ireland, whose defeat by the Lords excited so much wrath, would have become law had his government not known that the Commons did not mean it to become law, and that they would not have given it a majority the first time, but for their certainty that it would fail in the upper house. End of chapter 32, section 1